0: if you have a bible go ahead and open it up we are going to luke chapter 23 we're going to continue our series called seeing jesus out of the gospel of luke now luke gives us a collection of eyewitness accounts and these accounts are presented in such a way to retell the story of jesus this week and next we're going to look at encounters with jesus at the end of his life Pastor Jamie, who you saw this morning, we'll talk about the crucifixion next week. But today, we're going to look at the sham trial of Jesus that led him to his crucifixion. Hours before Jesus' execution, he would stand trial before two of the most powerful men in the region, Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and Pilate, the governor of Judea. Now he would also stand trial amongst the most powerful religious group in the area, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish high priest. There are times when a trial hits the front page of the news and all eyes are glued to the trial, right? Think about Brown versus the Board of Education, Roe v. Wade, Zimmerman, Rittenhouse, January 6th. Everyone's attention is on what's going to happen with this trial because there are ramifications Right? What follows what happens in this moment is going to change lives. It means something. And so we're glued to our devices, back in the day, to the newspapers, to, to anything that we can hear and glean more information about these trials, who will be found guilty, who will be acquitted, and what will the implications of this trial mean for the future? The same is true in the time of Jesus. Now, Jesus' trial won't last for weeks and weeks, but less than a day. Yet still, everyone would be talking about it. If you remember the Easter story, there's two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking to, ironically, the risen Jesus from the dead, but they are saying, are you not the only one who doesn't know about the things that have happened here, about Jesus of Nazareth? And imagine Jesus is like, tell me more, (laughs) right? Right? Because if there was such thing as going viral in the first century, Jerusalem, this story was trending, number one. Rome executed many people by crucifixion. It would be normal to go into a town or a village or a city and see someone executed by the Romans on your way in. Talk about a welcome team, right? The reality is, is that Rome did this to display their might and their power. Mess with Rome, and this is the result. Now, every eye and ear would be tuned towards what happens with Jesus because it matters. Most historians estimate that 200,000 to up to a million people would flood the city of Jerusalem for Passover, which is when this happens. That's a lot of eyewitnesses, by the way, for Luke to corroborate this story. The city of Jerusalem would be bursting at the seams. They would even expand it temporarily outside of the city walls to make room for all of these people. Passover would be a tumultuous time for Jerusalem. Passover was when, if you remember the story, God delivered his people from Egyptian oppression. So this is a celebration in commemoration of the deliverance of a foreign power. If you are Rome, (laughs) a holiday celebrating an oppressed people group's liberation from an oppressive empire is something to be very cautious about. And today, we will examine the trial of Jesus, which happens on the back of all of what I just shared, and we will see a surprising showdown between the representatives of the empire of this world and the rightful king of all, Jesus. Luke 23, verse one. Then the whole assembly rose and led him, Jesus, off to Pilate. Now, I have a question for you as we go through the text today. Um, and it's a question that we need to answer before we keep moving, which is this. Why is this global superpower of Rome and the religious leaders of the day, why are they so concerned about Jesus? Why is he such a threat? Why is this wandering, homeless, itinerant rabbi such a threat to the global superpower that is Rome and to the religious establishment that is the Sanhedrin and the high priest? Why? What is it about Jesus that would shake all of their foundations? Why is he such a threat? It reminds me, though, um, that there's an important question we must answer as we go into texts like this. When we study and when we read the Bible, one of the things that's really important is we have to answer this question first. What did it mean to the people who were living at the time? What did it mean in their context? If we can understand that, then we can begin to understand what the text is trying to say to them and therefore it's timeless truth that it is sharing with us today. But in order to do that, you have to do a little bit of history. I did the work for you, so I'm gonna share with you some of the things I've learned, some of the history that I've studied throughout this week and why it matters so much to the question I posed earlier which is why is Jesus such a threat to Rome and to religion? Okay, Rome is a global superpower, and it follows in a long line of other global superpowers. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. If you're a student of history, you know that empires rise and fall. And more often than not, they all do for very similar reasons, probably because they gain and maintain power in very similar ways. Now, Rome was thought of as an eternal empire. There was a Latin phrase, imperium sine fine. It literally meant empire without an end. The phrase expressed an ideology that neither time nor space could limit the Roman Empire. This was thought of as an empire that would never fall. It was thought and believed that Rome was started by the chief god, Jupiter, so they had a divine right to conquer the worlds. Now... Its sheer scope, in one sense, is astronomical. I'm going to show you a couple pictures of the Roman Empire at its height. These are maps. And they're going to pop up on the screen. The first one gives you a glimpse of Rome, its boundaries, its territories, right? This is the full expansion of Rome at its height. Conquered lands, conquered people, subjugated under the empire of Rome. Now, to give you an idea of what this would look like, I, we, I took this in paint and superimposed it on top of another photo of a place you're familiar with. Haha. Pretty crude drawing, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, this is Rome on top of the United States of America. Only one of the big differences here is that there's a lot of land in the U.S. that is not very livable, like people don't actually stay there. But in the Roman Empire, the conquered lands were fertile. They were rich of natural, um, uh, natural resources. Um, they were, there were so many abundant trade opportunities presented to them. Um, but like every empire, this land was conquered. People were subjected, wars were fought, and Rome came out the victor. Now, before Rome consolidated all of its power into the might of an empire, it experienced 100 years of civil war, 100 years of bloodshed. Then Octavius, later crowned Caesar Augustus, finally ended a 100-year war by eliminating all of his rivals and consolidating his power. Now, imagine experiencing a 100-year civil war very few would actually live to see the beginning and the end of that war. Multiple generations would know nothing but the constant threat of war and violence. During these civil wars, the Jewish people sided with the right faction of Rome, the one that would eventually win in the civil war. And they would be given special privileges by the empire. They would be allowed to worship, sacrifice, Sabbath, abstain abstain from empire worship. Um, They would be able to enforce their own religious laws. They would have their own security force. They would even have their own sort of puppet king in place. We'll meet him later. His name is Herod. This winning side would eventually follow under the rule of Augustus. They played their cards just right. Now, Augustus ended the civil wars, and the people rejoiced. And get this. They claimed that Caesar was the savior of the world. Poets like Virgil and Horace proclaimed that this Caesar, this king, ushered in a whole new era, Raduians, Saturnia, Regna. In other words, for the first time in two centuries, the god of war closed the doors of their temple and a new age of Roman peace had begun. The age of Augustus was the beginning of the age of Pax Romana, or Roman peace. Horace saying that Augustus was the son of the gods. In his time, Augustus was thought of as this, the savior of the world, the son of the gods. His kinship marked the arrival of a new age of Roman peace of the eternal empire of Rome. In other words, a kingdom of the heavens has arrived because the savior of the world, the son of God has arrived and his kingdom has ushered in a whole new age of peace. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Remember when I asked you why Jesus was such a threat to Rome? All of this matters and remember it because it comes back later. This gives us a little context into the story that we're going to look at today, but it's also important to understand that Jesus was not just on trial amongst the Roman Empire at the time, but of the religious leaders of their day. Why was he such a threat to them? Well, in chapter 22, um, the whole assembly that has gathered to present Jesus to Pilate are the religious leaders, um, and they make up this... um, religious ruling class that was allowed to function under the Roman rule. They were allowed to have their type of military, like I said, but there was one rule, one thing they could not do, and that is to execute capital punishment. So the religious leaders have had it out for Jesus for a while. Their playbook to eliminate threats to their power is to trump up false charges against Jesus. It's interesting that they would conspire with Rome to eliminate Jesus so that Rome could commit capital punishment for him. It's ironic because they also despised Rome, they hated Rome, and they longed for a king to rise up within their their own people and destroy Rome and usher in, what? A new age of peace. Now, notice the common thread. Notice the means they use are one and the same. They are supposed to represent a different kind of kingdom. Instead, they mimic Rome with a religious veneer. So in the sham religious trial of Luke 22, Jesus quotes Daniel 7, and he claims that he is the son of man. In other words, he claims himself to be the son of God, God himself, God incarnate. And it's under that trial he speaks, and they are enraged Luke 22, verse 70, they all asked, are you the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. It's blasphemy. Jesus claims to be God, and to them, blasphemers deserve death. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is reflecting on a story like the one we're reading, and he says this. Too often in the history of religion, People have killed in the name of the God of life, waged war in the name of the God of peace, hated in the name of the God of love, and practiced cruelty in the name of the God of compassion. When this happens, God speaks, sometimes in a still, small voice, almost inaudible beneath the clamor of those claiming to speak on his behalf. What he says at such a time is this, not in my name. The religious leaders have embraced the way of Rome and its kingdom, and they have abandoned the way of the God they are supposed to represent and help point people to. John's gospel tells us that these religious leaders are so concerned with their ritual purity that they won't even enter into Pilate's space. Think of the irony there. D.A. Carson once wrote, the Jewish leaders take elaborate precautions to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean so that they can eat the ritual Passover meal while they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him who is the true Passover. (laughs) They prioritize the exterior components of religion, while neglecting the more critical, inward realities that religion should point to, justice, mercy, grace, and love. The movements of religion should bring us closer to God in a more profound, weightier way. They should, religion should never be a substitute for God. What does this teach us? It teaches us that it is possible to be devoted to religion and completely miss Jesus. Devoted to religion and completely miss Jesus. How can we do that today? Well, it's it's much more simple and more deceptive than you could think. You could serve. You could attend church services and small group gatherings. You can go through Alpha. You can read your Bible. You can practice the rules and regulations without ever being transformed by the love of God, which all of that should point to. How do you know? You know because you prioritize the external things, at the expense of the transformation of your interior being, your soul, right? Instead of becoming more like Jesus, more grace-filled, more compassionate, more loving, you're more concerned with keeping the rules, doing the, the things the way we're supposed to do the things, right, and this is the subtle trap that the religious leaders have fallen into, and it is a subtle trap that we can as well Now, this is what's going on in the text. All of that to say, verse two, are you ready? (laughs) And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. These are all trumped up charges. Jesus never taught people not to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, he taught the opposite. Remember, rendered Caesar... Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. He's taught the complete opposite of that, but okay, they make up these charges, right? Was Jesus ever a violent revolutionary to subvert the nation of Rome? No, that was never a part of Jesus's life or ministry. Not once. Ironic because for the religious leaders, it is their ideology and what they are currently doing right now. And while, they, while Jesus did claim kingship, They are only telling a half-truth. And we all know that a half-truth is what? A lie. (laughs) They present him as a physical rival to Caesar. Now, a Roman governor had three jobs, okay? Keep the peace at all costs. Administer Roman law and collect taxes. More complicated than that, but that's the simplicity of their job right there. The Jewish leaders know this, so they are trying to force action and Pilate does not initially take the bait. Verse three, so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he has come all the way here. Verse 6, on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, remember, Herod is the puppet king under Rome. He's also the crazy guy who beheaded John the Baptist. And um, in the book of Acts, he would suddenly die because people proclaim that, oh, he is the God, and he doesn't say, no, I'm not. And then he just falls over, dies, and is eaten by worms. Crazy story, but anyways, that's Herod. And uh, here, Pilate makes it clear that he sees no guilt in Jesus. He is innocent, but he passes the buck of responsibility on to Herod. Notice this, Jesus is on trial for others' sins. He is innocent, proclaimed innocent. He is not on trial for anything that he has done, any sin he has committed. He is on trial for the very people who are trying to execute him. Have you ever been on trial for another person's sins? I have, and it's not fair. It's incredibly frustrating when you have to experience the consequences of other people's actions. When you're in a situation like Jesus, where it's not only the consequences of their actions, but you are being falsely accused of things that you never did and were never a part of. What would be the dominant emotion you would experience in that? I'll tell you what mine is, anger. This is not fair. This is unjust. How dare that person put me in this situation? But notice what that does inside of us. Suddenly it begins to open the door to pride. Pride. Why pride? Because you subtly start to believe and experience and feel that you are somehow better than the person accusing you. That you are somehow righteous to their unrighteous behavior. Notice what Jesus does. (laughs) Jesus does not raise his fist in anger. He does not write a dissertation about why he is right and they are wrong. He knows who he is and he knows he is innocent. He knows this is unjust. He also knows that if he doesn't keep moving through this, these people, the very people that wanna take his life, will never have the chance to experience God's love, his grace and his forgiveness. The New Testament says it's for the joy that set before him, he endured the cross. It's not pride you see in Jesus' response. It's not a lack of confidence either. He knows who he is. It's humility. Would you choose love and forgiveness even if it costs you something? It, we're presented here two kingdoms and two kings, representatives of Rome and their kingdom, and representatives of the kingdom of heaven and Jesus and its true king. One is of pride and deceit and lying and hiding and stabbing each other's back and clamoring for power. The other is to give his life away for the good of everyone else. The text reminds us and invites us to choose to whom will you serve today? Which king will you follow when you are on trial? Pilate's response to meeting Jesus is one of cowardice and indifference, It's centered around the desire to maintain his life the way it is. How many of you know Jesus disrupts your life? Right, Jesus disrupts your life. But his invitation of disruption is to something better, is to something good, it's to be made whole. And here, Pilate has an opportunity. Yes, he would walk away from Rome and all that it has given to him, but he would come to Jesus. But for him, right? His response is, he's afraid. He's afraid of what could happen. He's afraid of losing what he has. And honestly, he's just a little indifferent about this whole situation. Verse eight, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time, he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Verse 10. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. Then they sent him back to Pilate. Herod's response to meet Jesus is to mock him. He sees no need for Jesus, for what he deems is weak and powerless. If he truly is a king, it's a weak kingdom. If he truly is... Uh, 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 if he's part of a kingdom it's weak if he truly is a king he's weak so he mocks him he sees him maybe as a magician to offer a cheap trick i'm reminded that we think often if we could just see a sign we might believe that he is who he says he is and story after story in the bible of people who see signs and wonders and miracles still try to come up with another explanation besides god visited them Verse 12, that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. There were political points to be gained here. Rivals become friends. They're united by their priorities, not necessarily by their hatred for Jesus. If anything, Jesus is an annoyance that they will have to deal with if they only knew who was before them. Here's some of the responses in the trial that we see to Jesus. We see indifference, that's Herod and Pilate. We see cowardice, what it might cost. Pilate again, mocking Herod and his associates. Vengeance, those are the religious leaders. Violence, all of them for different reasons. During the trial, this is the response of those who see Jesus. And it remains many's response today. How will Jesus respond to such darkness? Well, John's gospel gives us another glimpse into this trial, which is important. Um, If you have a Bible, we're going to John 18, and we're gonna start in verse 36. It's also gonna pop up on the screen. Jesus offers a contrasting kingdom of heaven. In John's gospel, Pilate asks him if he is a king, and Jesus replies. Verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. His kingdom is not of this world. It's of another place. It's not just located elsewhere. It's of another kind, he says. He says that um, if it were like the empires of this world, then I would respond the way kings of this world respond. But instead, my kingdom is different. And my response will also be different. This week, two of my daughters came to my wife, Fallon, and I, and they said, Mommy, Daddy, what do you think the kingdom of heaven is like? Now, you can imagine, um, I am ready to preach the sermon to my children, right? Because I'm just like, yes! And my sweet, wise, amazing wife, um, she saves me in moments like this. And she turns the question back around on them. She goes, That's a great question. What do you think the kingdom of heaven is like? And one of my daughters says, I think the kingdom of heaven is filled with giant pink bouncy houses. (laughs) And the other one goes, and rainbows. (laughs) Remember when I said Rome's scope of their empire was astronomical? Um, What about the kingdom of heaven? Let me show you some photos. Um, This is the first one that's gonna pop up. These are all from the James Webb Telescope. Uh, This is the galaxy that we currently reside in. You see that little sign? You are here. It is pointing to a very small light. And on that very small light from us to there is this tiny little blue planet. And in that planet is this tiny little human empire run by this tiny little human named Caesar. Let's put this into perspective, right? But let's not just stop there. Why don't we zoom out? Again, we're going to zoom out one more time And again, zooming out again, you see all those lights right there? Those are the galaxies that we are a part of. And somewhere lost in all of that is a galaxy that's massive to us and a tiny little planet and a tiny little empire called Rome and a tiny little man called Caesar. But let's not stop there. Let's zoom out one more time. Thousands of universes. This is the furthest out picture that we have of the universe, sorry, galaxies. These are thousands of galaxies, you guys, as far as we can zoom out. And each one of those lights is the picture that you just saw. (laughs) That's what's out there. Sometimes just let the awe and wonder of God just wash over you. Perspective is so important, am I right? C.S. Lewis wrote a brilliant work of fiction called Out of the Silent Planet. And uh, it's within that work of fiction that he presents the cosmos, as I just shared. But on Earth, it's this tiny little pocket within the cosmos of rebellion. And it is quarantined from the rest of creation because of what happened here, because of sin and rebellion. But get this, with all that you just saw, understand the greatness of the love of God. With all of those universes, right? All of the galaxies and stars and nebula, all of that. God loves you so much that he enters into this tiny little speck to rescue you. If you've ever questioned the love of God, just remember that picture, Right, I mean, like, isn't there another planet where they do better than us? (laughs) Someplace? Just scrap this one and move on to the billions of other opportunities. But no, that's not who he is. He not only loves you so much to enter into our story, he loves you so much to be put on trial, but as tiny little humans. He subjects himself to what we think is justice and righteousness, to what we think is the representation of the entire kingdoms of heaven. Come on, the guy who created all of that comes down to our story to save us, to rescue us, to show us his love. Don't ever question the love of God. If that's what he is willing to step away from, but also that that is his rule in reign. The other thing Lewis presents is that what happens here is not the common thread for all of God's creation. If you thought the empire of Rome was big, Jesus's kingdom is much bigger, (laughs) and his rule and reign is over all, and that is what is coming into this very broken place. But Pilate doesn't get it. Verse 37, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the very reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth will listen to me. Pilate retorts, what is truth? With this, he went out again. To the Jews gathered there in the, in the, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release this king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Pilate doesn't understand where Jesus is from, he doesn't understand who Jesus is. Jesus enters into the story and says, I am the truth. Right? The empire tries to manipulate and tell what is true and what is not, and Jesus shows up and makes it clear. He says that truth will prevail even in the face of death, and yet Pilate still pronounces his innocence. And we're introduced to a character named Barabbas. Barabbas is someone we can see ourselves in. It was a custom during Passover to release a prisoner. And um, it was a political move to keep the Roman peace. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He helped lead a physical revolt against Rome and he was waiting capital punishment for his crimes. Unlike Jesus, his charges were real. He was not innocent. Throughout the trial of Jesus, Barabbas had been locked up in an inner high-security cell called the Tower of Antonia. And it's from this location he would have heard only some of this trial, what was going on outside of the prison. Matthew's gospel gives us some clues, perspectives as to what he would have experienced. Pilate, speaking, would have said this, which of these two do you want me to release? The crowds respond, "Bravus!" Pilate would respond, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? The crowd responds, crucify him. Pilate, why? What crimes has he committed? The crowd, crucify him. Pilate, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. The crowd, let his blood be on us and all of our children. It's safe to assume that Barabbas could not hear the lone voice of Pilate speaking out into the courtyard, away from the prison. It's also safe to assume that he did hear the very large crowd screaming. With this in mind, Barabbas would have only heard, Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. Imagine the chills, the fears, the cold sweat he must have felt when he heard those ominous words. From what he could hear, he would have assumed that his execution was near. <laughs> Imagine this feeling moments later when the guards approach his cell. Their footfalls, the sound of his execution. Instead, they unlock his door and they tell him he can go free. <laughs> Imagine the sudden rush of shock and exhilaration when he learned that he was a man free to go. Why? Because another man. A man named Jesus was going to be executed in his place. Can you imagine the emotions he must have felt as he walked away from the prison that day? A guilty, convicted criminal now set free. His punishment on the shoulders of another. Paul described this in this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Peter said it this way, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. To say yes to Jesus is to enter into his kingdom. What did this king come to conquer? It's not us. He came to conquer sin and death. How did he conquer death? He gave over his life. He became sin by never giving into it, experienced the full weight of death and its power only to show that you cannot crucify the Lord of glory. Death has no power over him. Two kingdoms and two kings in this story collide one that claims to be of heaven, and the other that is actually of heaven. Their virtues, their values, they clash. One seeks to dominate and control through violence and fear, which is false power. The other seeks to unite and heal through self-sacrificial love, grace, and forgiveness. That is true power, and that is his true reign over the universe. The question for us today is who will you choose? Who will you choose to follow? And which kingdom will you ally to? Jesus is not cool with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Choose today, who will you serve? Which kingdom will you be a part of? If you haven't had a chance to give your life to Jesus, today can be the day for that. We're gonna close our eyes and enter into a time of prayer. I wanna pray over you two things. For those of you who have never followed the true King of Jesus, it's a very simple start. You know who he is because you've heard me say it and simply just say, Jesus, I wanna follow the true king of the universe. You don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to jump up and down. You don't have to raise your hand. You can acknowledge it in your heart, but tell somebody when you're done because that's important. The second is this, and I wanna pray over you this way too. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Your allegiance is to the king of kings. Jesus, in this space right now, if our allegiance has been pulled into different kingdoms, different ways, different places, different people, we ask you to recenter us on who you are. Jesus, help us be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Instead of violence and hatred and discord and disunity and all the things that come that are broken, Replace them with love and peace and forgiveness and kindness and goodness and self-control. Jesus, work within us to be the kind of people that represent the rule and reign of Jesus unto this earth. Amen. We're gonna take some time now to worship by singing. If you would like to stand with me in response to the King Jesus and sing with me.